0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.
1: How many of you, you know, known or or, uh, had an acquaintance with somebody who suffers from arthritis? I mean, in a big way. It's it's not good. And... um, it can be very, very debilitating for loved ones. So this is something uh, this can be very interesting to hear about, no matter whether you cared about entrepreneurship or not. This is easy to get um, interested in. Um, but it also shows, again, what we're trying to achieve with ETL throughout the years to have a mix of entrepreneurs and CEOs, as well as their supporters, like venture capitalists and, and authors, for example, but have a mix of sectors, which uh, as you know, Steve Blank's course that meets after this uh, takes a look at. So we're happy to to have somebody from the life science uh, field. Just like we're happy to uh, celebrate uh, green tech and information technologies throughout the year with these seminars. So today it's healthcare. So let's give a big welcome uh, to Bill to Stanford.
2: Well, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, The title of my talk is going to be The Importance of Purpose in the Entrepreneurial Journey. And I think you'll see the significance of that as we move on. Ten years into my career, I was vice president of a billion-dollar division of a $6 billion company. Our scope included 40,000 products and seven market segments in diagnostics. On the path to this position, we had the opportunity to be involved in multiple product launches, new venture launches, turnaround, and restructuring assignments. As exciting as these experiences had been, in my current position, I felt the degree to which I could truly change the business, chart new courses, pursue new targets, was somewhat limited. The organization I was in at the time didn't seem to be as interested in breaking through to the next level. I was frustrated. The opportunities I had pursued previously where we could do the analysis, make the decision, move forward, weren't the same today. With this as a backdrop, I want to take you to a specific meeting, a so-called lateral coordination meeting, where the heads of sales and marketing for five or six divisions were all gathered together to talk about their goals, their objectives, places we could go as an organization. And as I was strenuously arguing for a new direction and how we should pursue our competitors in a different fashion, I'll, I'll never forget the break that we took after that um, discussion. A colleague caught me in the hall and said something that would change my life forever. His comment was, relax, it's only a job, it's not a crusade. And that comment hit me like a ton of bricks because to me... If I was going to be investing my life, my time, it better be a crusade. It better not just be a job. Within five minutes, I gathered some of my thoughts and called a friend in the search business. And eight weeks later, I was running my first company as CEO, my first experience as an entrepreneur. I want to talk about that experience in a little while. But I want to start by saying, as you think about your life, your career, that you think about signing on to a worthy crusade, a worthy cause, something that has deep meaning and significance. The talk this afternoon, we're going to talk about first the past as preparation, how 10 years in larger organizations prepared me for my first entrepreneurial experience, the early journey as an entrepreneur, with primary focus on a company called Uricor, as well as some experience with a group I formed called Alpha Bio Partners. Then I want to talk about what we're doing now, a company called Crescendo Bioscience, which Tom alluded to, and then talk about lessons learned at each stage of the way. Let's begin with the past as, as preparation. I started with a company called Beckton Dickinson, as a billion dollar diagnostics and medical device company. I had the good fortune of joining a smaller division that had been recently acquired by the corporation. It specialized in the field of uh, electrocardiography. We had EKG carts we'd place in all different sizes and types of institution. And behind that, there was a pull through of, of consumable products, as well as we offer computer interpretation of EKGs. I had the opportunity initially to build a sales administration group to look at order processing, tracking, forecasting capabilities, And with that task behind me, begged for the opportunity to go into the marketing department to work on consumables and supplies. And there, my first really interesting opportunity was to work on something that sounds very simple. It was a patient cable. How does a cable hook up to an EKG instrument and give accurate recordings? Here's what we found. When we went out and worked with techs that interacted with patients, when they put the block on a patient, they immediately flinched because it was cold. So maybe there's an opportunity to do something about that. All the wires came out of one end of the block, but yet they were all going to be placed different parts of the body anatomically. So maybe we could realign how that happened. The techs were always dealing with tangled up cords. So maybe something could be done about that. Those kinds of observations, that kind of interaction, left a real influence on me as we redesigned things like that cable, and then went to work on things like EKG carts. The company had previously put a really high-powered design firm in place. The style was fantastic, but the problem was he had issues like the EKG carts didn't fit between beds in the hospital, or when you tried to wheel them into an elevator, the wheels got caught because they were too small with the crevice involved. So a lot of time was spent with a white text jacket, meeting with EKG techs all across the country, learning what worked, what didn't work, what they wanted to accomplish. And that led to a real sense of, how do you think about new product design? How do you think about innovation? And this was an opportunity that I had at a very early stage in my career, to which I was very grateful. The next was being able to be trained in the Beckton-Dickinson program which was focused on strategic management and planning, where we learned a lot about how you analyze markets, how you think about relative competitive position, positioning, and a host, host of other things that would be important. A fantastic early start to the career, thoroughly enjoyed it. But I was recruited next by a company called American Hospital Supply. It's a company that was acquired in 1985, so it doesn't exist today in its current form. But back then, it was an amazing place to start your career. They took young, aggressive talent and trained you extraordinarily well, the best of academic programs. But then you made the decision. You made the call. You had P&L responsibility, typically, very early in your, your career. It was an organization that was growing 30 to 40% per year. So it wasn't uncommon that you were in a different position every six months, every 12 months, every 18 months. It was an environment either people did really well in or they tended to wash out in. But it was the ultimate meritocracy, and it was a great place to uh, invest time. We had an opportunity to launch several lines of what are called hematology analyzers. They do complete blood counts, looking at things uh, like red blood cells, white blood cells, etc. Also had opportunities to do some other very interesting things, including working on my first turnaround on the product line level. The company launched a series of instruments. There were $125,000 instruments, sold 75. 25 were on their way back based on performance issues. I was in Boston at the time as a region sales manager. But the company called me and asked if I'd consider coming back to Chicago based on what launch experience we had in the hematology line early on. And it was a really interesting assignment, because it afforded us the opportunity to get really close, really fast to issues, or issues that weren't really that clear to start with. There were symptoms. there were vague uh, areas of dissatisfaction. So we looked at every placement in the country, all 75. We looked at which ones we would call red, which ones were yellow, and we deployed somebody to visit with every one of those accounts. Express our dissatisfaction that they weren't happy with the purchase, try to better understand what were the issues, what were the root causes. And within a period of about two months, we were able to dissect about eight different issues that needed to be remedied really quickly to be able to bring that product line further uh, forward. As it ends up, we kept all but one of those 25 sites and systems. And it was a great experience in communicating, digging deep, Uh, reach conclusions, but reaching them not too quickly. A few years later, I had a second opportunity to be involved in a turnaround, and this was in that hematology venture where some issues had come to play, and senior management was looking at shutting down the enterprise. So with another colleague, we argued the case for how we could do some things in the near term to turn around the performance, put it on a solid footing for the future in the long term. It was a very interesting meeting, as I recall, with the division president and a couple of executive vice presidents. They listened to our passionate appeal and our 20 slides or so, and then, with no comment, excused us. About 15 minutes later, I was asked back in the room, and in the category of being careful what you wish for, they said, We're going to give it a shot. You got six months. You run it full time. If it's successful, you keep running it. If it's not, there's no guarantees for your future. It was a fantastic opportunity, uh, one I'll never forget. We worked every single part of the p l We looked at every different way that we could generate increased earnings and top line performance in that business. And there's a lot of things that we had to do in that time period. But the bottom line, on the bottom line, was we were able to get it through break even to profitability in six months. Within 12 months, it was to double the division operating margin. It was a great opportunity. Along the way, we became part of the Baxter organization. Totally different culture as they acquired American in 1985. So to those of us that were used to highly decentralized, this was an organization which was much more centralized, command and control, and to some extent frustrating if you wanted to make the call, move things further forward. Well, following the experience I had in running that business unit for a couple of years, we had that opportunity to assume that VP of marketing position for the scientific products division. That was a discussion that I just went through a few minutes ago that led to my ultimate leaving the organization. Um, And I want to share some thoughts about lessons learned in those first two or three company experiences. So at Becton, as well as American Hospital Supply, and at Baxter early in the career, what were the things that we tried to focus on, things that seemed to matter, make a difference as it relates to, preparing me to jump out into the entrepreneurial world. The first one was take initiative. So we didn't play it safe. Where there were challenges, where there were issues, where there were things that failed, or where people didn't want to pick it up, we loved picking up those kinds of assignments. And there was always the risk of failure, but there was always the prospect of success as well. So that was one of the things that was very important to me. The next was just get in the field. Learn firsthand what's really going on with customers. How are they thinking? How are they processing information? There's something called intense observation, where you're really trying to discern what they're trying to accomplish. Is there a different or better way to accomplish that? Learn how things really work. Map them. Analyze them. Develop the models. Um, I remember, near the end of my Beckton experience, I had taken a room of my apartment and turned it into a war room, and it was nothing but flip charts, strings, and other ways of mapping through different issues to try to figure out how something was done today, how might it be done uh, in the the future. So a little intense, but um, this is something that uh, I really believed in and served me well over a period of time. The other one was um, problem-solving skills always, always important. And there's so many different ways to attack a problem, to think about how to come out the other side, think about criteria, weighting, what's important, whose view, whose perspective. But being known as effective problem solver is really important. Collaborating, taking into account the ideas of others, synthesizing, moving those forward in a very productive fashion. Always being known as someone who's trying to pursue the best possible answer, not looking at individual agendas or what's best for one group or one department or another. It matters over the long term. Broadening the experience base. The things that were important to me is I learned the strategy side, the marketing side, sales. There's something about being in front of a customer. And when you think as a strategist or a marketeer, that this plus this should equal this, you find out in front of a customer, that often isn't the case. So broadening the responsibilities, thinking strategically always, but then delivering tactically consistently, and then a point I'm a really big believer in, which is just tenacity, and the difference between success and failure is often in the last um, 10% of effort. So things learned in the larger company experience that allowed me to move to the next phase. Let me go to that next phase, the early journey as an entrepreneur. Um, The company, Uricor, was a venture-backed company based on a check transfer out of the University of Oklahoma. And the goal was that this, this technology would allow physicians to be able to not only detect bladder cancer, but a wide range of cancers. But the company had missed all their product development milestones, market development milestones, financial milestones, and had terminated the founder CEO and was involved in three sets of litigation. So the board was looking for a CEO to come in, quickly determine, what's the lay of the land, what's the path forward? This was no doubt to be a challenging assignment, and thus far there were no takers. Uh, We took the plunge, and uh, what an interesting challenge it was. What we thought was interesting was the opportunity to build a company, to look at a field like cancer where there were clearly a wide range of unmet medical needs. And the fact that it was a turnaround wasn't necessarily a negative to me, given that we had had experience in a couple of other areas where that was kind of an exciting aspect to be probed or pursued as well. First thing we did was evaluate the technology, and we found that it wasn't something you could build a company around. So now what? The company had nine months of, of cash remaining, was a technology-based company that didn't have a technology. So we began an intensive analysis about what could we do, what could we build. So we looked at markets. We looked at physician types. We looked at unmet medical needs. We started in the field of urology because the company had started in the field of, of bladder cancer. We found some really interesting things. This clinician was trained as a diagnostician and a surgeon and an oncologist. So when you think about certain cancer types, there is continuity of care between a physician and a patient. Next, they had really specific goals at every stage along the way. They wanted to detect cancer, diagnose it, prognose it, stage it, determine if they should perform surgery or deliver therapy, monitor the effect, and then look for long-term evidence of, of cure or recurrence. They accessed services from disparate sources. So to each of those goals I just mentioned, they make get one of those accomplished by going to a local hospital, in another case to a local pathologist, in another case to a regional cytopathologist. And nobody was bringing all this information together. Nobody was focused on delivering levels of service or quality or advanced information that could conceivably be brought forward. It was a finite audience, 7,500 docs, so manageable to access. These docs made their own decision on what services they accessed. Interesting. And we went through a large stack of publications on advancing technology in the field, and we found there were some really interesting things going on in a number of academic medical centers. So here's what we decided. We were going to build a, a business focused on the urologist as a specialty, look at a range of diseases, and with the goal of working with a physician through every step of the disease process, bringing forward the best of existing technology, and then augmenting it or supplementing it with the best of advanced technologies that we would license from um, leading academic centers. Well, that was the strategy. And it got unanimous buy-in from our investors as well as the board. So we began the execution phase recruit a new management team that could execute that vision, build the services platform, build a laboratory at the same time. This took about another six months. While making progress, behind the scenes, litigation was advancing and had unfavorable outcome to the company. So we had a long discussion with the board and our investors. The consensus was winning strategy, teams in place, first products launched, first customer secured, but very difficult to fund the company to the next level until the question of legal overhang was resolved. We chose to address this collectively via financial reorganization. Address the issues, recapitalize the company. Well, this is not without risk, and so we thought about what happens to your customers, what happens to your employees, what happens on a whole range of fronts if you put a company into a Chapter 11 reorganization. So we thought about each of those areas. We put a simultaneous petition of reorganization and plan of organization in place, and then we just worked really, really hard to come out the other end. And in 120 days, we were able to settle all claims, recapitalize the company. We retained 100% of our employee base, and we, in fact, grew our customer base by 30%. We are now on an unencumbered path to grow the business. The phases we next looked at for the company after the turnaround phase was emerging growth and then advanced services platforms. So for the emerging growth phase, with basic capabilities in place, what we now looked at was how do we deploy ever more reps into the field, get access to more and more physicians, more physicians means access to more patients, and how do we drive more products in. So it's really executing against the growth model for the company. And then in the area of advanced platforms, we really, really wanted to make a difference with patient outcomes. So one of the projects we pursued was something we affectionately called the scroll. It was a diagram of the disease, like prostate cancer. We looked at how it unfolded over a period of years. What were all the branching points? What were the decision nodes? And then we looked at what was important to a patient through that process, what was important to a physician, what was important to a payer. And it was by each stage, from initial detection all the way through ultimately what might happen to a prostate cancer patient. And we focused on that document month after month after month as we built the company. Where can we innovate? Where can we add new products? Where can we add services that would be of value to our customer base? We complemented that process with a program where twice a year, every manager, every member of the senior and middle management team would spend a day with customers. It was a great experience. And we spent the time looking at what were we doing currently? um, What was our business relationship like? What could we do additionally that would be of value to clients? And the day coming back and the thinking through further, what were next steps and what we could do, were profound. We learned, for example, that reports that we provided to physicians, which were really graphical, they might show, here's a diagram of the prostate, Here are the regions of the prostate. Here's where cancer was found. Here's a photomicrograph of what the cancer cells and tissue looked like. There was a bibliography to tie to the literature base of similar type cases. Very information rich. Well, they were sharing those reports with their patients. So we said, well, why don't we develop a second page of the report that's written in patient language that you can share. It's a tremendous advancement. And I'll never forget one of our top physicians said, Your reports make me look brilliant in front of my patients. They absolutely love the care and attention that they get and the specificity. So examples of listening to your customer and thinking carefully about the disease and where you can lever a difference. If I were to fast forward over the next uh, several years in that business, we grew from 10 to over 400 employees. We provided services ultimately to 40% of all urologists in the United States. We were an Inc. 500 company in 1992, 93, 94, and 95 for our growth rate. And we transitioned from four rounds of private capital to public company in 1996. Great learning experience. Absolutely loved it. Incredible journey. But I thought I would do that for maybe five years. Five years becomes six years, becomes seven years, becomes maybe close to eight years. I had the feeling that I wanted to do something new, something different. And there was also this constant assessing of one's skills, their contribution, what impact they could have on the organization. There is something very distinct in the context of company life cycles and where are you in that overall process. And as the business grew through $50 million, and there was a lot of focus on systems, processes, controls, versus some of the things that I was much more interested in, There's this great article in Inc. Magazine that caught my attention from a serial entrepreneur. And it said, there comes a time when you realize the business needs something you can't give it. At the same time, you need something the business can't give you. Maybe it's that energy. Maybe it's what it was like at the time of the startup. But in any event, to me, it spoke loudly to, I want to be transitioning on to the next thing. that meant putting a plan into place such that within 12 or so months, I could leave, I could move on. And so exactly 10 years to the day of when I walked through the door of my first entrepreneurial experience, I announced I was leaving. And reflecting back on that company experience for 10 years, there's a lot of things to think back on. There's a lot of things to maybe be proud of. But I think the things that were most impactful were we believe we help transform a field by providing more insightful tools and capabilities to physicians to improve patient outcomes. And as a result of that, there may be patients alive today that wouldn't otherwise be. And to me, this was a cause. This was a crusade we're signing on to. So let me take a couple minutes to talk about things learned in that first 10 years as an entrepreneur. <clears throat> So there are things we learn in big companies, and you'll see really different things when we talk about this slide, and you'll see really different things when I get to my third slide later. It's this integration of the strategy, how it ties to a business model, the efficiency of the business model, what your growth metrics are in financials. They've got to be ultimately extraordinarily integrated and all work together to spell success. There's great complexity in these fields where you've got clinical, or medical dimensions and considerations with advanced scientific insight, biology, let's say, at work and patients, and then a wide range of technical dimensions that come into play. And it's especially uh, critical for the CEO to understand what are these concepts and how these concepts integrate. You can't just delegate these things. You've got to have a pretty good understanding at your level. There's this extreme need for multitasking, unlike anything I saw in the larger company experience. I've got my big three, four, five priorities for the year, maybe, and a big company and a staff of 80 people. So here we're a group of eight to 10 people, and there's an amazing range of things that have to be happening. And if any one of those fall down, it might mean death of the company. And at the same time, there's very limited margin for error, so you've got to be right on almost all the decisions that you make particularly when you were really under the gun as we were 60 days to find whether there's a business here or we should shut down because the technology didn't get us there. The importance of culture, focus on patience, is something really, really important. There's all kinds of things you can try to gear people towards, and they can range from we're going to build a company, we're going to take it public, and people are going to make a lot of money. To me, that doesn't cut it. The fact that we're going to build a company that's going to change a field and we're going to improve patient outcomes and survival, that's something to sign on to. And in fact, um, I recall that the deciding factor for me in hiring the chief medical officer I did was, this was a person who lost his father and his mother to cancer. So it was personal. It mattered to him. We had a lot of people like that. Power of team interactions, collaborative impact, removing barriers along the way. There's this great exercise we did one time. We had about 20 of us sitting around a room, and each of us were given 21 questions to solve or problems to solve. Nobody got more than 10 or 12 right. We then broke into teams. No one team got more than 18 right. Wasn't until we all got together that we got 21 right. These were some of the brightest people, MDs, PhDs, MBAs, and otherwise. But unless we let our barriers down and really worked together collectively, we wouldn't get as far as we could. Leadership needs to be acted out and not just talked about. And this was a lesson I learned really after the fact. We went through those dark times of putting a company through a financial reorganization, and I commented that not a single person left in that period. I didn't know till later when somebody told me, because you were confident, because you didn't waver, we didn't leave. So that was something you, you had to act on because you really, really believed it. It wasn't something you could just talk about. The importance of vision for the long-term balanced with deliverables. Uh, This was something I had to learn on more than one occasion. I love vision in the strategy side of things. And, And if you don't have a vision, you don't really have a future. But if you don't deliver in the near term, you never get a chance to live out the vision. And then this understanding of company life cycles. Different things need to be in place at different stages. You'll recruit certain people. At some stages, you won't get at other stages. There are some people that want to leave once it gets to a certain stage. So understanding that's uh, important. So to the path of the current. As I'm running tighter on time than I thought, I'm going to skip one section. And then go right to uh, more recent. So about four or five years ago, with a colleague, I formed a group called Alpha Bio Partners, And our goal is to look at promising science and technology, really early stage science and technology, and try to decide which of those had a promising commercial pathway. We would do a really large body of work. We would look at markets. We'd look at existing products. We'd look at technology waves. We would look at additional proof-of-concept studies that were necessary if it was a a drug, what kind of studies we required to get it to an IND stage, what kind of clinical trials would be required, if it was a drug compound, what would it take to make it, how much was it likely to cost to make it at scale, what would be human dosing, what would be cost of goods, what would pricing look like, just a wide range of things with the idea to make companies that we would ultimately form as, as, as strong as possible by answering the right questions up front as opposed to learning about things further downstream, which we would have seen time after time after time. So we had the opportunity to work on things in antimicrobials as well as diseases like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But the company I'm running right now, Crescendo Biosciences, came out of that effort as well. And that's where I'd like to spend the next uh, little while. The founding scientist spent five years at the National Institutes of Health Arthritis Branch very knowledgeable disease pathology, biomarker technology applications, was at the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, which is a powerhouse in autoimmunity, when we met. Mike was passionate about his desire to transform that knowledge, that insight, those biomarker insights into products that would make a difference with patients. And for him, it was personal. Mike's an autoimmune patient from an autoimmune family. So what we do matters. So success is measured a little bit differently. So again, when I would think about what was something I'd be willing to sign on to that really would make a difference, Mike's approach, Mike's commitment mattered to me. After about 12 months of work, this kind of exhausted process that I went through, uh, we showed the company to three VCs here in the Bay Area. And we're pleased that three of them liked the deal and worked the deal. And while all three were working the deal, uh, more David, our MDV, was really fast. First meeting the term sheet in eight weeks, great negotiation on the terms. Uh, The only two that were uh, particularly interesting uh, to talk about were that I would do this full-time, and we would put the company here in the Bay Area. So those were kind of interesting considerations. But I loved the opportunity, and the more I kept looking at the opportunity, peeling through it, the market, the opportunity, the unmet need, uh, the more we we really, really wanted to be involved. And the fact that uh, Mike would be a key part of that as well on the science side uh, was a real positive. So we closed the Series A in early 2007. Uh, Mid-2008, we closed Series B. And that was led by Kleiner Perkins. So great couple of investors, both really experienced in molecular diagnostics and personalized medicine, which is the field that we're in. So I'd like to uh, talk you through a few points of what we're up to. These are some things that uh, Rog and others had an opportunity to see when they came by the company. So we'd be considered in the field of molecular diagnostics. We're solely focused in the field of rheumatology, and you're going to see some parallels to some other things. And, in fact, when I met Michael Goldberg from MDV, I said, Here's what we want to do. We want to take the best of what we learned in a specialty-specific play where we got to understand the diseases really well, combine it with the best of what we've seen with technology-driven companies on the molecular diagnostic side, and bring those together. So autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, there are a wide range of those, but the ones that we'll, one will focus on initially, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, we'll be technology agnostic. We're trying to solve a problem. What need does a physician have at a given point in time in managing a patient? So... We have several forms of technology that we're working with. And then we'll build a technical specialist organization. We'll call directly on rheumatologists all across the country. We'll deliver our products as a service. So a doc has a patient in their office, gathers a serum specimen, sends it to us. We do an analysis. We send back a test result. So the area that we focus on, rheumatoid arthritis, 500 individuals per day are given a diagnosis of RA. There's one point four million patients with this disease. This isn't regular arthritis, this is rheumatoid arthritis. It's an autoimmune disease, the body's attacking itself. It's a disease marked by systemic long-standing inflammation with accompanying damage and most frequently erosions that lead to structural damage um, and disability. Four out of five patients 10 years after diagnosis of RA are out of the workforce. It affects the population that's uh, 75% female, and average age of onset is 47. And there are significant uh, comorbidities, uh, cardiovascular disease and complications, among others. So to that opportunity, what are the tools? Well, they're pretty terrible. They're nonspecific. They don't provide insight as to what's happening with the biology. They're really more based on signs and symptoms. And a physician really wants to know, what's happening with that inflammation? Is the patient heading towards clinical remission? What's happening with erosions and joint space narrowing is that patient heading towards radiographic remission. And because the tools are so insensitive and inadequate, you get back to this uh, age-old statement, you cannot manage that which you cannot measure. So what's our solution? We want to transform the field by turning the lights on at the individual patient level to reveal their underlying disease biology. And we'll do that by integrating a large number of biomarkers with algorithms that tell a physician more of what's going on with the patient. It's clear that in a disease as complex as this one biomarker, two biomarkers, whatever, won't provide the answer. And as we do that, we can deliver quantitative, objective, reproducible tools and tell a physician more what's going on with disease activity, trajectory, erosions, etc. Another mind-boggling aspect about this marketplace is that there are over $6 billion worth of biological therapies being used on these patients. And no doc would say that they have a tool that tells them which patient, which drug, which dose. It's 12 months of trial and error. So the opportunity as we see it, look at multiple products over a period of time that can be delivered for that physician to access, to dial in what's going on with the patient, get them into clinical remission, get them into radiographic remission. To do that, we have some really efficient ways of, screening through massive numbers of biomarkers determining which ones have utility, which ones provide the most information as we go forward. There's a lot of computational capability. There's a very bio, strong bioinformatics aspect uh, in all of what we do. And biology modeling is very important as, as well. And thinking about clinical pathway models, which is something that uh, we had a very special project to work on recently. So for us, it's not just about delivering a product. We want to understand the biology today and long standing. We want to understand what's happening clinically with patients and how can we gather more and more information and present that back to the field. So the business itself is extremely efficient. You call on 3,500 docs that manage 1.4 million patients that are being seen up to four times per year. It's highly leveraged, very effective business model. So that's a little bit about what we're doing at Crescendo Bioscience uh, today. So lessons learned now as a serial entrepreneur. So this gets a little longer and a little bit more dense Pack as we go further forward. Um, So this was a really interesting preparation for this talk, because some of these things I hadn't really focused on as much, but they're really interesting. So so now when you think about these things, you architect it much more deeply up front. You think more about all the variables that could come into play, how you're going to have them all linked together, this market to model, to financial, to capital formation, to capital efficiency. There's a lot more thinking you do before you actually start acting or executing. And you think about how can that model be even tighter, even more efficient as you move further forward. And you think about risk a lot. Risk is a good thing to think about. A lot of people have the perception that entrepreneurship is all about taking risk. In actuality, it's about how to minimize the risk. You do that by thinking ahead, having really smart people, um, going through your work two or three times. So it's looking at risk early, where it's going to come up midstream, where it's going to come up late, redundancy, reflexive pathways, uh, et cetera. Really, really important. Um, and the culture, still, patient, still focused on the patient. The patient matters. The physician matters. That's what we're really here for. And then thinking in terms of excellence. Uh, we did a, a survey on our culture recently. And there was a great statement somebody made that said, everybody in this company thinks like a scientist, even if they're not. We have people in a commercial group, advanced statistical analysis and how they think about market penetration models and so many other parts of the organization I could go on. But it's thinking about the best techniques, the best approaches that can be brought to bear. Collaboration, best idea, uh, bias towards uh, new approaches and innovation. And then even more, the focus on talent. A, A plus talent. Who's been through the drill before? And I really like the one of who's lived through new paradigms. When we're dealing in the field of medicine, when you're trying to change physician behavior, doing something different, it's great to do that with people that have been through one paradigm, two paradigms, three paradigms, because this is where companies oftentimes fail. The other thing is we think much more now about not just the top level of the organization, but two levels and depth and breadth being really well addressed as early as, as possible. Uh, Leadership that's more based on direction and empowerment. So there's different leadership models, so-called level four, level five, servant leadership, transformational leadership. So I think about those things differently now than I did back when I was just trying to fight my way to live another day in building a company like (laughs) Eurocorps where it looked like there might not even be a tomorrow. So thinking about leadership differently. Programs, they're broader with greater impact in multiple waves. So you architect it more, you muscle build it more with more talent, and then your programs are stouter by way of what you're advancing simultaneously so that you have greater impact, you have multiple waves right behind it. And then not just being able to synthesize, as I was describing before, clinically, scientifically, technically, at all levels of the organization, but it's building a cadre of experts, three, five, seven or more, in each area that's going to be important to you. And the last thing, it seems pretty obvious, but building enough time to think, to reflect, uh, to not have things moving so quickly that you're missing important opportunities as they're moving forward. So, a full talk, a long talk. My goal's been twofold, really to describe the journey of an entrepreneur through multiple stages, large companies, first time through the cycle, second time through the cycle uh, on a full-time deal. And I wanted to emphasize as we go forward that what you focus on, how you approach it, matters. Thinking about more than just signing on to something, but signing on to something that's important, something that's a cause, something that could be defined as a crusade Makes a difference. So, with that, I'll say thank you and I'll open it up to questions.
0: So, William, thank you uh, uh, for coming. And uh, as uh, some of you know, I'm Steve Blank. Um, I teach the MSNE 278 class, The Spirit of Entrepreneurship, that uh, surrounds uh, the ETL lectures. And uh, our class uh, gets to ask the first couple of questions, and we're lucky today to also have William uh, is going to be able to join us in our classroom as well. Uh, so William, the first question that just kind of struck me, as you were kind of going through your history, um, can you think back to the day you realized you were an entrepreneur? Did you, was there like a light bulb?
2: Uh, that's a great question. So... Uh, That first line of hematology systems I had the chance to launch was from a venture-backed company in Mountain View, and I was in Chicago at the time. And the interacting with the management team and just the rush of what was going on there and the pace and the intensity uh, I was definitely intrigued.
0: So was it an endorphin activity? It? Uh, it's,
2: it's hard to fully describe, but endorphin was certainly part of it as well. I, I just love the making things happen, making them happen quickly, and a really efficient process. And, uh, you know, bigger companies have their own kind of plotting aspects to them.
0: Great. And then next question I'm going to get wrong because I'm not a biotech kind of guy. I'm a yeah, computer yeah. hardware guy. But But to me, diagnostics sounds different than a... Therapeutic drug like a cancer cure. Is there a major difference on how you um, uh, interact with the FDA for something that's a diagnostic versus something that will go in your body? And if yes. so, what's the short version of? of
2: yeah, it's, it's very different. There is definitely a long version, but the short version, if you're dealing with a drug, Uh, There's a pre-IND package that needs to be submitted.
0: What's an IND?
2: Uh, Investigational New Drug Application. So the IND goes on, it allows you to do phase one testing, which is looking at safety. So is the drug safe? Next thing you're doing is looking at uh, first test of efficacy. That's phase two. And then you're powering up further to phase threes to test efficacy at a higher level. That can be a very long process. It can take somewhere between five and ten years depending on the wow. drug, what's the endpoint, and a whole host of other things. In diagnostics, it can be much quicker. There's something called the 510K process where you show substantial equivalence to something else that's out there, and you might be through the overall cycle in 90 to 120 days. Conversely, if it's something brand new, you might have to go through a PMA, pre-market authorization, and that can take uh, one to two years. So they're very different paths, very different parts of the agency with a lot of different considerations.
0: Well, thank you. And, and so with that, I'll open it up to the class and uh, the audience, and uh, you could just take questions from people who have them. We
1: right. You're When you're interacting with the doctors and getting their feedback on these new diagnostics, did you find it was difficult for them to take new methodologies, like teaching an old, dog new tricks, or are they very willing to change up how they've been trained through diagnostics and oncology? And-
2: Great and- question. And, on. and so so, and the question was, When you're looking at new tests for doctors, um, do they accept them or do they sometimes have some skepticism? And it really varies by specialty. One of the things we loved about rheumatology was the specialty was so open to new approaches and that the field was so far behind others, and they had to rely so much on gestalt as opposed to having specific tools. Uh, We just found it to be a wide open audience, uh, willing to collaborate, willing to look at uh, new ideas, but that's generally not the case. That's the exception.
0: Yes? Um, so I saw in your bio that um, you, your degree is actually in, I believe, business management. That's right. So I'm wondering, how did you learn like all this intense <laughs> bio stuff?
2: Uh, just brute force more than anything else. So, yeah, I had an undergraduate business management. Uh, I wasn't trained in the life sciences, so these clinical scientific and technical aspects. These are just things that we we committed to learn in whatever venture we were involved in at a level of proficiency where we could be conversant with scientists or MDs or whatever the case was. Um, Maybe not always something that somebody in a leadership position does. Uh, I would have to say I just also really have a, a passion and a love to learn. So it didn't feel like work a lot of times either question was there an element in the status quo that
1: felt threatened by your innovations and how did you interface with
2: that you know i so the, so the question is uh are, are some threatened by innovations and it and it really depends i think that's it's an important part of 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 uh, trying to understand what somebody's trying to accomplish and what can you do uh, for them that takes them a little further down the path for example in this rheumatology venture, we, we noted that uh, they were going through these really thick folders. So these are patients they've seen many times, and you can kind of see them visually trying to construct different data points in a particular order to get a complete picture. And so if you said to them, would you like a report that characterizes everything that's happened up to now and everything that's going on right now, etc., you'd probably get a, wow, that's great, based on if you can show how you're trying to maybe solve a problem. If you pushed something on them like a, a uh healthcare medical record from, from the perspective of they do the work to get the benefit, you probably have a very different response. So I also try to find ways where you could help them accomplish something in a way that's painless uh, and, and might add another twist or two on top of uh, even what they were thinking about.
0: Yeah, You know, had a
2: previous question about Learning the field. Do you have any advice for those seeking to get into the healthcare business? And like, moreover, how do, you, how do you learn what to do better than the actual doctors themselves? Yeah, that's, so how do, the question is for those that want to get into the medical field, how do you learn it? And also, how do you learn to do things better than the doctor themselves? That one's a really tricky one. So let me tell you what, some of what, what we did. So we, we, we first framed rheumatoid arthritis out clinically. We, we constructed kind of this care and medical practice model with with experts in what's called meta-extraction from the literature. And then we we talk to docs about, you know, when you have a patient right here, you know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What tools do you have? How how do you feel that that needs being satisfied? Do you feel really confident? When you hear things from them like, I need a tool to give me confidence to do such and such, or I need a test to... I'll allow me to convince a patient we need to take a particular course of action. You know you're kind of on something. So, so we do the one-on-ones to try to tease these things out. We'll characterize them a little bit further. Maybe then we'll do focus groups, 10, 15 uh, physicians in a room. We'll, we'll boil it down a little bit further, tighten it up. And then we might do quantitative market research, so conjoint analysis. So, so we, we define certain product attributes, degree of satisfaction, and we try to really nail how you would need to build a product and deliver it to them, and test it to see if that's something that they would adopt, and adopt in what kinds of patients. So it's a variety of steps that one would take. Yes?
1: I was curious with the specific diagnostic tool. How does it sort of plug into the cost equation? I mean, I know obviously it's going to give a lot more information and a lot more and I mean, I guess that could lead into some costs, but I was curious how this plays out. Is this going to be an added cost, or is it going to allow you to sort of, with doctors, to offset by, like, not that doing it's unnecessary? Research. It's is really
2: important to look at. Uh, so the question is, are costs additive, or how do you look at that in a healthcare system, if I kind of paraphrase it? So that's really, really important. So some of the things that we looked at were, if you have a patient that's relatively in control at the end of a 24-month time period, And in this disease, 24 months can really help set the trajectory for the long term. Uh, A patient that's in control might cost the system only a few thousand dollars per year, longer term. patient that's not in control, 20, 25, 30,000 plus. So to the extent that you can show that you can move percentage of patients towards control versus lack of control, and then you run some cost-effectiveness calculations, uh, you can get there. But we, we do a bit of work on modeling health economics as well as uh, surveying payers for their thoughts and views. It's also interesting in rheumatology that drug cost has gone from zero basically in 2000 to $6 billion currently, uh, and they're struggling with that. So which patients really need which drug, which dose, et cetera, it's something they're, they're very desirous of better solutions for. Yes? Um, so there's lots of different types of entrepreneurs, like both in what they do and what kind of person they are. Absolutely. So, um, what specifically did you do when you were first starting out in companies, and how
1: would you characterize yourself as a leader? Um,
2: so how did I get up to speed as an entrepreneur and how I think of myself as a, as a leader? So how do I think of myself? There are, there are a number of ways that you can better understand your strengths and your skills. And I would have liked to have covered that, and I did. So there are these things like Myers-Briggs. So I study Myers-Briggs, and so uh, I'm more of an INTP. So I'm fairly intense. Uh, I'm more analytical. I'm more uh, inward. I love to think about a wide range of different possibilities. That's part of my makeup. Uh, you could do something called strengths finders. And so there uh, I would test high in vision, strategy, analysis, innovation, and deliberation. So there's a series of things you can do, but it's really important to know yourself because you, you can't force a style that doesn't work for you. And there is no one-size-fits-all. So I, I, I then try to accent the skill in strategy, vision, global thinking, how something might work, um, how the pieces fit together. Uh, I also am told I'm reasonably good at building teams, so I try to focus on building teams with the best possible talent I can and now it's set, set direction and empower them and make sure that they have all what they need to be as successful as possible and course correct uh, where necessary. But knowing yourself, knowing your strengths, knowing your skills, complementing, really important. I would say it's not just your strengths, it's your passion. There's some things you will just love. I love innovation. So if, if I'm not given a chance to innovate every now and again, I'm, I'm not going to be as happy. Uh, There is also that uh, part of Marcus Buckingham's uh, work that talks about um, knowing your strengths and how do you live, how do you look at time blocks, and how much of the time you're actually living to what you're really good at. And I guess the last thing I'd say is that at a certain point you realize that I may never be good in a particular area, and I could try to keep getting better there, but I might be better off just saying, I need a person that can do that really well because that's their strength, so I can just focus on what I'm best at. Yes.
0: So following up on a question about
2: leadership,
1: you mentioned something like, uh, in your third uh, you know, point, you said uh, leadership based on direction and empowerment. What do you mean by empowerment?
2: Yeah, so early on, I used to get really, really done into the details of things. And, and so how does this work, this program, this detail, how's it going to work, etc. cetera. Uh, and now I'll be more focused on finding somebody that's, that's as strong or stronger in some of those areas. Uh, for example, I have a head of commercial that's absolutely fantastic. So the best thing I can do with Ted is give him you know, my best thoughts and my experiences as I've seen him and let him synthesize that and integrate it with you know, his strengths, his skills, and his experiences. So, so that's an example. And if you, can, if you can build a team where you've got a number of those kinds of individuals, you're really going to be moving fast. Uh, Let's take
0: one more question. Last question. You talk a lot about talent. How easy was it for, like,
2: uh, just turning around or a small business to find talent and improve talent? And how did you overcome this So the part I I didn't mention was that the company we built in urology was located in Oklahoma. So I have a, a whole talk kind of on building, Businesses in a region with no industry-specific uh, infrastructure, and it's really tough. So we had to ultimately bring in 20 M.D.s, Ph.D.s, and members of the senior management team, recruited one at a time, with you know relocation, recruiting dollars. So it was really difficult. Uh, Where and, and and compounding that was uh, that there was a turnaround, and so. You had to really believe in what you were selling as it relates to this is where we're going. This is what's going to happen. And people will assess whether you're really there or not. And they're going to factor the decision based on that. Uh, so your conviction, your passion, your ability to credibly tell the story is important. That's not to say you don't explain the risks, because you've got to explain the risks to people, too. They've got to be eyes wide open. So,
0: So William, thank you very much.